Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the podcast that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is our everyday technology. And there has been some research recently that suggests that the pandemic has caused a sharp rise in the breakout of podcasts in the millennial males in their early 30s. And that's what brings us to you today. My name is Chris Adams and I'm here with Sam Gregory. Hello. <laughs> Sam, who have we got on the show today? We have a, well, I mean, I would call them a friend, actually, but um, I actually have not met this person in person. Uh, we met through a mutual acquaintance who, uh, you know, thought we would benefit from each other's services, him being a copywriter and me being a web developer or running a web development agency. So, yeah, we have um, Alex Napier-Holland, who's a uh, B2B SaaS copywriter. Cool. Well, I mean, did you want to just introduce yourself and uh, tell us uh, who you are, where you are and what you do and stuff and we can kick it off from there? Yeah, sure. So my name is uh, Alex, Alex Napier-Holland. I write sales copy for SaaS brands. So I've worked with a range of SaaS companies, over 50, getting on to 60 now. Um, a few standout names like Salesforce and Adobe, um, but mainly medium-sized B2B SaaS brands. Um, I've been involved in uh, sales for coming up to a decade now. So I spent six years in international sales for SaaS companies and then started writing sales copy when I was out in Australia uh, three going on four years ago. So I basically just got sick of wearing a suit and quit my job and uh, started working on a building site while learning about digital marketing in my spare time. And then moved to Bali soon after that and built my business there. So I've been living in Bali for a couple of years. And then for obvious reasons, I'm based in the UK right now. Um, but probably heading to uh, moving out to Portugal later this year. So on what you might call a digital nomad. Whoa, we hate using that expression. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, but yeah, I basically write sales copy for B2B SaaS brands. So my customers are in America. Uh, a lot of New York, San Francisco, London, Singapore, and Sydney. So I basically blend my experience. I trained as a journalist, actually, originally um, after university. So I take that interest in writing and combine it with my experience pitching and selling B2B solutions um, to create powerful sales copy that drives hot leads and more uh, more sales for SaaS brands. I think that's a tagline I I overuse way too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess right to the point, isn't it? So, yeah. yeah I mean, you and I, uh, Kenny introduced us, didn't he? Uh, shout out to Mentor Pass. Uh, he thought we'd be a good match or something, right? I don't Kenny, know how. Ke Kenny introduces lots of people. He's good at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never actually I met never... Kenny, funny enough. Oh, really? No, we, we, we hang in similar circles. We've talked quite a bit online. We've gone to different events and never quite met each other. But he's nonetheless hooked me up with a few people, so... Yeah. And I think that it's quite interesting that what kind of switched me on to what you do is your specialism in SaaS. Uh, my company, uh, we work in SaaS, but like having a, having a specialism, I feel like is, it's the point of a specialism that you, you, it hooks you in and you speak to the right people and you get that, that type of work. B2B SaaS specifically as well. I mean, I don't know how many B2C SaaS copywriters there are, uh, you obviously get B2C SaaS platforms, but the vast majority seem to be B2B. So, yeah, it's pretty niched. Um, I know if, I know some other people in this space. Um, I mean, what I like about B2B SaaS is that at every level, from the clients I work with to the people I network with, you're dealing with good people, nice people. Um, it's not a space for people go into because of gimmicks or because they're chasing a trend. It's not an easy space to work in. Everybody I know who's designing SaaS products is pretty smart or very smart. They're hardworking. And the marketers involved in B2B SaaS as well are good people. And when I step outside of SaaS, I'm often reminded, you know, I, I've tried e-commerce, I've tried a few other spaces, and suddenly you're dealing with some pretty unpleasant people sometimes. And I just feel the B2B SaaS space is a really nice place to be. Lots of good people trying to genuinely make a difference which in marketing is is oh i don't want to say rare but it's not super common yeah and did you 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 got into b2b SaaS, and was that like 
did you have an interest in it? I mean, you mentioned you worked in journalism and that seems like quite a big departure. Was it like, I want to go for that industry or you had a genuine interest or you kind of fell into it? Like, how did that come about? It's kind of funny. Um, so I guess journal- there's a real full circle for me. My interest in journalism was pretty romantic and naive. And it was this idea of becoming, I don't know, Christopher Hitchens or someone like that. And the reality of journalism is that uh, it's incredibly badly paid. And there's a tiny percentage of people who become really high level, well-paid journalists. And it's a bit like the music industry. Those people aren't even necessarily the best people. There are some people like, say, I don't know, John Simpson, say, who are very good at what they do. But there's some journalists like Piers Morgan, for example, who aren't bright or talented. They just get there through sheer luck. Um, I just realized it would be a bit of a slog. And I started looking around and I basically fell into sales. It was a international sales job working for Commonwealth. Um, and I mean, I was an international politics student. I was always interested in, um, I think, the cultural side of things, learning how to pitch and win clients across Africa, for example, seeing that uh, in Africa, you look at Ghana and you look at Nigeria, which are only two, uh, there's only one country between them. And the huge cultural differences between those two countries when you're pitching and selling to them and the different styles of behavior that you need to employ. Uh, in Ghana, um, it pays to be a lot more um, less aggressive and um, overly polite when you're pitching and selling. Nigeria, which is pretty nearby, you need to be a lot more assertive and dominant in the sale. And so learning these cultural nuances across Africa into the South Pacific. That was what really grabbed my attention, what I loved about sales early on, having to understand culture, cultural differences, and why people from different places with different backgrounds like being spoken to in a different kind of way. And this was a really uh, heavily B2B type sale. I was dealing with CEOs who generally like somebody who has a very front-on, ultra-masculine, direct way of pitching and presenting. I then went into academic sales for Pearson and I remember bowling in through the door on the first day and um, yeah, essentially the, uh, the academics were really intimidated by this. So I didn't like it at all. You know, I was behaving in a typical alpha male way and having to flip it around instead and learning how to ruffle my hair up, wear glasses, put my chest down and approach the door sideways, giving them a side on body language saying, Oh, I'm Alex. I work for Pearson you mind if I talk to you? So I had to completely readjust my behavior and my language. Um, and obviously with sales copy, you don't have body language, but you have tone. So I think my interest has always been in culture from a kind of global perspective and how that influences people. So I gradually shifted from um, doing phone sales through to tech sales. I specialize in international sales for that reason. Um, so I, I ended up becoming head of international sales for a uh, ed tech company and spent a lot of time in uh, Asia and America. And so, yeah, deciding to shift into sales copy, I was kind of naive. I didn't even know sales copywriting was a thing. I just figured, hey, I like selling. I like writing. Lots of websites I visit have copy. You know, maybe maybe somebody who writes that could be quite well paid. When I got into it, I, I, it's actually a pretty well-established industry. Um, but I went into it with no real idea about what it involved. I just stuck together my interest in sales, my interest in copywriting, and it kind of worked out okay. So it was, I kind of found it by chance, I guess. Yeah. That's really interesting because you can, I can already see the kind of journey that you're going on of starting out in journalism and then moving into sales. And then of course, like into SaaS copywriting, sales copywriting. If looking back, it actually makes sense. The time you around me were like, I mean, in particular, when I was in a well-paid sales job saying, I'm going to throw that away and go back to the bottom end of marketing, you know, going from being senior sales to just a junior marketing executive, people were saying, well, why would you do that? But in hindsight, it was completely the right thing to do. Because um, if you combine sales and marketing, that's a really powerful skill set. So, mm. And you mentioned moving, uh, stepping into a room sideways. Yeah. And it will probably translate into copy, but do you kind of have to learn that stuff the hard way? Or like, how do you learn that? That that's the correct way to approach stuff? Are you given a heads up? I always learn. 
I always learn things the hard way. That's the only thing. Even if you give me advice in advance, uh, my mum said when I was a kid, the only way I learned how to be careful with matches was give me a box of matches and let me burn my fingers. Under supervision, I should stress. Um, so, yeah, I think I've, I've made a lot more mistakes for most people. But my thing is, I, I don't really mind making mistakes as long as if you make honest mistakes and you own them, then nobody really minds. And if you learn from your mistakes, people, clients, bosses, managers are normally really forgiving. As long as you own your mistakes and say, hey, I didn't know any better. And now I know. So, yeah, in my company, I... Um, I think my manager who hired me, he took me from a hard sales background and I was being interviewed for academia and he knew from day one that my behavior and style was quite bullish and aggressive, but he liked me and he was very direct about, okay, you've got the job, but we need to work on this and that. And I love, I love getting criticism. I really like, I like, I love getting critical feedback. And I think that was why he hired me. I mean, it certainly wasn't my academic credentials because he said they were worse than anybody else they hired um, or anybody else they interviewed. But yeah, he said that when he, he deliberately tore everybody in the process to pieces, he said no matter how good their presentation was, he'd make out like it was bad because the only thing he really cared about was how well do you respond to criticism? And even if it was a great presentation and you're a top candidate, if you don't take criticism well, you're not my team don't care and my thing was i love getting feedback thank you for giving me this feedback so that that was why i got the job which is a lesson i think to quite a few young graduates now it doesn't really matter how good you are your ability to respond positively to critical feedback i think is everything and as a freelancer that couldn't be more true so yeah i i um the body language stuff i'd go back and say hey you know i didn't didn't get this deal or um this person didn't want to speak to me and so my manager would come out with me and he said well you're being too aggressive you know so let's work on your body language all of these things are fixable all of them so. yeah yeah i think like i enjoy that as well um whether it's feedback or whether it's just putting my fit into it to uh to kind of get a raise get a raise out of out of people like something because it's through those you know the feedback and the mess ups and essentially that where you where you learn things and that's not a new thing it's just again it's just how how well you take it and how how thick your skin is at the end of the day and your most valuable thing i think in business anywhere especially as a freelancer is trust trust is the most important thing in the world and trust doesn't mean trust to just get it right every time it's about to fess up and as a freelancer every freelancer makes mistakes and any credible business owner is aware that they make mistakes and will respect a freelancer who says, hey, I made a mistake here and own it as early as possible. And you rarely get any problems when that happens. If you, if you just completely, when you try and paper over the cracks, which isn't something I do, you try and paper over cracks, that's when you get into trouble with clients. But as soon as something goes wrong, if you say, hey, this thing's happened, so rarely is that really a problem. I think it's important as well to actually propose some sort of, course, of solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all well and good, like I've messed up, but it's like saying, you know, we can do A, we can do B, we can do C and get that feedback. But definitely couldn't, couldn't agree more. And that's the only way as well that you, you evolve and grow. I mean, like my, ter my terms and conditions for my business are like carved out of blood. Every single one of them is like <laughs> something, something bad that happens, something really bad. That you I can don't... always tell, can't yeah. you? Yeah. If you do this, then you will pay this. Um, and I always talk about them to other freelancers. But uh, yeah, you, you only find out boundary setting the hard way as a freelancer, I think. Yeah. Because obviously SaaS is a very specific niche. Uh, did you find that was a lot of learning? Because again, coming from journalism and SaaS specifically, is that another world that you had to immerse yourself in it and to be able to understand it? Or did it come naturally to you? Well, I was, I was, doing, I was in sales for six years and four and a half of those years were SaaS sales. So that was why, oh, okay. why I naturally went for that. I spent 18 months selling advertising for the Commonwealth. And I spent four and a half years in education technology sales. So it was mainly enterprise SaaS. So that was, I went for that just because it was a space I'd worked in. But actually, with hindsight, it's a good space to be in anyway. Because if you are someone who goes to bed each night 
wondering if they're making a positive change in the world. That's not always easy to do in marketing, but I think in the SaaS space, there's a lot more scope to do that than any other space I can think of. Um, so yeah, it was kind of an obvious thing to do. I mean, my, my emphasis was ed tech. At the time, now I work primarily with, I do a lot of fintech, uh, prop tech, especially recently, working with quite a few real estate companies. Yeah, fintech, prop tech, um, they're the two main spaces. Uh, also quite a lot of software companies, test automation, DevOps, um, just B2B sales, essentially. That's what I specialize in. And if I move into a new area of B2B SaaS, there is domain knowledge I need to learn. So the first time I worked with a property company, I had to do quite a lot of study. And then after that, the next client that I work with in property, I can jump in a lot more quickly. So there's a bit of domain knowledge, but the process is very similar for B2B. The fact that you're dealing with multiple stakeholders is similar. The way that you engage people is similar. I have the same frameworks. I just might need to spend a couple of days reading industry reports and getting up to speed before I start with a new sub area that's all mm. is there anything i don't know i don't know how many times you've had to repeat that process and learning the domain knowledge but is there a, like a specific process or website or resource that thing that you you go to 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 learn how to approach the industry i mean the biggest clues for any industry for any marketing is always customers always so um, obviously that's contingent upon how effective that business has been at engaging with its customers. So if you're dealing with a business that has done a really great job of engaging with their customers, I'm working with a company now, um, it will be live by the time this comes out so I can say their name. They're called A-Now, they're a real estate company based in America and these guys are seriously impressive when it comes to their customer engagement. I know their CEO speaks to, cl to clients a lot and I'm given a spreadsheet of hundreds of quotes from happy customers saying this product's awesome and it's changed my life in these particular ways. Um, that is the groundwork for everything that I do on top in terms of understanding the problems it solves, but understanding the kind of language and language that they use as well. And the thing with the biggest mistake people make with B2B sales is thinking B2B sales is just about the business. It's not at all. It's about the people. And although the way that we write might sometimes be slightly more dry or safer, um, it doesn't change the fact that you're selling to human beings who have real emotional challenges. And so when you look at business owners, they say things like, yeah, it gives me more leads. Yeah, it gives me more sales, but it gives me more time with my family. I can finish work on a Friday afternoon and get home and spend time with my family, stuff like that. So yeah, I would definitely start with um, customer testimonials, but I like to um, chew through industry reports as well. So a lot of the time you're just, if you look at the big accountancy firms like KPMG, Deloitte, they do awesome industry reviews a lot of the time, telling you what the new trends, what the new emerging technologies are that are gonna disrupt prop tech and, and FinTech and other industries. Um, looking any of the decent broadsheets. So I'm British, so I'd go for Financial Times, um, but The Economist as well. Um, just spending time searching for um, reports on the industry, I think is really valuable. So it's always that art versus science. The science side of things is the technical reports, the art, the emotion side is more engaging with the end users and getting a real feel for and an empathy for the emotional impact that those technologies have on them yeah yeah and kind of bring that full circle to what we were saying about failures you say testimonials equally uh bad testimonials are as important as the good testimonials because there you know where you're falling short and they're your objections in your copy. So I can foresee that being an important exactly, thing to your process yeah. too. Very much so, yeah, very much so. I mean, obviously it's great if uh, the objections, the negative reviews are for their competitor, not them. But uh, <laughs> negative reviews nonetheless are useful. Um, I mean, the best place to be in as a copywriter, um, the most fun place to be in is working with a company that have quietly been doing an amazing job of looking after their customers, but haven't really known how to tell everybody about it. 
and they think they're not very good at marketing because they've not got a fancy website. You dig in there and you're like, oh, what the fuck? This is, these are hundreds and hundreds of reviews from happy people. Do you know how valuable this is? And they've been busy just doing their job and they're like, no, this is amazing. You get huge companies, huge technology companies that don't do a good job of this. So it's really nice when you find a company that think they're not very good at marketing, but have just done an amazing job of looking after their customers. And uh, you're just like a kid in a sweet shop for how many angles you have and how many amazing things you can say. That That's like the, the best place you could be in as a copywriter. And what about uh, companies that think they're doing it right? Like, is that difficult for you to navigate uh, and make work for you then? Because yeah. they're probably quite precious about what they've done or written. A hundred percent. Yeah. The worst place to be in as a copywriter, which I, I'll be honest, doesn't happen much in SaaS is to be with a company that has a huge reputation and in industry presence, but at one point in time was probably well-deserved, but feels they're just great and has lost touch with their customers. Typically small businesses tend to be more directly engaged with their customers from bigger businesses. That's a generalization. There's exceptions, but the vast majority of companies that I know that have lost touch with their customers are big. They're too big. And, you know, you just ask them, well, when was the last time you grabbed coffee with one of your customers? When was the last time you had a beer with one of your customers? Well, no, we don't do that. Where's your problem? And that happens at bigger companies. Now, I don't think it happens as much in SaaS. What I like about SaaS, not just professionally, but personally on, a, on an ethical level is that, Every time you open your mouth in SaaS, somebody says, prove it. If you want to say the best at anything in SaaS, where's the data? You know, where, how, how can you demonstrate this is true? So I don't think there are as many big companies sitting around in SaaS just riding on their reputation as there are in other industries. But it does still happen. Things move quickly. And a company that was a market leader five or 10 years ago can easily become a dinosaur by thinking they know everything. That's why I think good copywriters will always be external rather than internal. Um, because when somebody becomes internal and somebody spends too much time inside a company, they can't see the wood for trees and good copywriters typically work as freelancers. And I think companies who want to really challenge themselves should always hire freelancers. If you hire a great copywriter and keep them inside your office five days a week, they won't be a good copywriter after two or three years. Yeah. And they're speaking of the language of the company as well. They're not speaking the language of the users, which I don't know, a great company will be in touch with their users, but if they're not, then they're just in this bubble. Yeah. And you get so used to and indoctrinated to their language. And that's the biggest issue with um, um, a lot of companies I speak to. And actually, I think again, um, in SaaS, I think you don't have, no one has to be good at marketing. No one has to be, but you have to be aware if you're not good at marketing. And I deal with founders who are awesome at product development. And they say, hey, I'm not, I'm not too great at copywriting or whatever. Um, can you help? And of course, I love to. The issue is when you have somebody who isn't great at marketing and think they think they are. But most founders, I think, in SaaS are aware that even if they are good at marketing and even if they are good at writing, which many are, but when you spend too long on a product, you can't write a copy for it. And that's why um, even for copywriters, um, it's well known amongst copywriters that writing your own website copy is really damn hard. I wouldn't want to tell anybody how long I spent writing my website and I won't because writing copy for yourself is the hardest thing in the world. And every copywriter knows this. And it's the same thing if, 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 a, if a software package is your baby, you've invested three years of your life in it, you won't write a copy for it. It's not possible. It's not your fault. It's the way these things work. Yeah, I do. I think that uh, it's not just copywriting, actually, because my company did a lot of branding uh, once. And I describe it like you're inside of a glass bottle and you're trying to read the label from the inside. And it's just impossible to do that, to have that outside perspective. It's just key. And and I'm sure you find this in SaaS. I mean, maybe not B2B, um, I'm not sure what scale they're at, but when you're trying to make ends meet, which a lot of startups are, you know, you have to write your own copy or you have to do your own branding or you have to do your own website. But when you get to a certain point, 
it's it's important to flip that and invest in yourself and hire a copywriter or someone from the outside to to do whatever it is you need them to do because it's impossible to do yourself but i think that's the right way to do it because i think actually hiring a copywriter when you have absolutely no marketing and branding assets isn't great either i think as a founder i think do the best you can on your own do the best you can with your team then hire a freelancer because it's a lot easier to come in and see okay this is where you guys are at this is what you're trying to do cool, this is good, this is good, this sucks, and this is why. It's a lot easier to work with that than it is to just magic things out of thin air. Yeah. How do you then, like, my thing is building websites and building apps. How do you fit typically into that that process, that website project? Uh, are you kind of brought in from the beginning? Like, where are you in that? That varies. Um, what would be ideal would be to be involved from the beginning. What can often happen is, oh, hey, we built a website, we got to the end and we came to write the copy and we realized it's kind of a big deal. Um, can you fix it? Um, that happens quite a bit. Again, less so nowadays, I think, because people recognize it's important to involve a copywriter. So yeah, fairly early on. Now, we tend to liaise closely with um, UX and UI designers. Obviously, uh, UX in particular, you know, people watching who don't know, UX is user experience, UI is user interface. User interface makes stuff look pretty and shiny and nice. And UX is more about the underlying architecture. And as a copywriter, we essentially do some degree of UX. If you, at least if you're a high-level copywriter, um, what pages does the website even need? You know, and again, this can be split into conversion and SEO, you know, conversion or SEO, what's likely to be found popping up in a Google search result. So you need to look at search intent there. So what kind of things does your target audience look for and how can we structure a website to capture that traffic? But then conversion, once people land, what's your business goal and how can we get there? So a copywriter should be involved as early as possible. So we need to understand uh, your macro business goals, what you're actually trying to achieve at an organizational level and how a website can fit into that. You know, what, what's your overall um, business model? What are the products and services that you sell? Okay, well, this product is where you're generating most of your revenue right now, but actually you anticipate this product is going to be a future larger source of revenue or you're transitioning from being a product to a services-based company. We need to know all of this stuff. You know, if we've got to reach out to, we've got to keep a certain audience happy while also reaching out to and generating organic traffic from a new audience and keep both those people happy at the same time. We have, you can do that, but we need to be involved at a very early level. A lot of the time I will go in and say, well, why have you got these page structures? I mean, why have you chosen these pages? That doesn't make any sense. Um, and then within the pages, the actual structure of the pages too. I, I wouldn't like to be told these are the page structures, write copy for them. That's not, that's not where I add value. I add value much earlier on. I mean, writing a copy is almost, I don't know, 30, 40% of what I do. I want to be involved as early as possible talking to the CEO, the head of marketing and thinking about the very broad, big picture strategic goals that website needs to achieve because that will change the structure of a website um, completely. And then liaising as well with people in design as well to think how do we want it to look and feel because that affects the writing too as well. So, Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because anyone I speak to says that we want to be involved in the beginning. And as a business owner, um, we get this discovery period which you you need to choose to bring people in um to run and all the rest of it and you want to build that picture in that session but you're challenged with this idea that that often clients can't afford to have everyone in that room because more people more money more time so i'm trying to build a process uh where we have an initial discovery session and we try and get the business goals and all, all the normal stuff and a ux person will facilitate that and then we would try and feed the the result of that session into the various different you know teams um but I, what i would say copy should dictate the information architecture it should dictate the sitemap and 
there needs to be that fluidness between the teams. Basically, what I'm saying is not everyone can be in that session. But when you say, like, right from the beginning, are you saying that you're quite adamant in being involved in that discovery and, and that your involvement is crucial? Or would you say that, you know, if we're on a project together, that we've done the, we've done the discovery, here's a kind of report of what, what came out of it, um, and, and kind of go to town with, with this information. And you, you're free to do whatever you want. Like, you're, you're free to interview whoever you want and, and go and talk to whoever you want. Um, is that kind of process kind of acceptable to you? Yeah, that's acceptable. And I'd probably say that's where I come in the majority of cases, as long as you're happy, but I will push back and say, okay, well, you've got this website structure here. Um, but let me question that, you know, are, how are you planning to reach these particular um, audience segments? Why do these pages exist? As long as you're happy for me to question those. And yeah, the majority of the time that is when I come in and I, bounce back a few different ideas and as long as the team's receptive and say hey that's a good idea we hadn't thought of that or no you're wrong and this is why um the fact that the team is flexible and receptive to a conversation about the structure that that's probably the more important thing so yeah ideally i'd been involved earlier but as long as people are open to rational conversations about things and as i said earlier this is a prevalent way of engaging in SaaS. I don't come across big egos very often. Um, most of the conversations are rational and fair, and that's why I like working in this space. Mm. One of the most interesting things you just said as well is that you see through to the actual UI, and that's something I hadn't really thought of. Um, obviously, it's nice to have these kind of touch points to sort of, you know, I sort of see it like a graph where you're kind of heavily involved in the beginning, but then you then you kind of peter out. But yeah. but I guess I never saw it as like seeing it through, but then you're kind of still involved and that you're interested um, towards the UI and creator side and the visual side. Do you get to do that often? Or because like I've, I've not really heard of that. Yeah, I mean, I... Um... I dabble in website and graphic design on the side as well, which helps. Um, I think as, as, as a copywriter, you, you should. I mean, if you're a copywriter for SaaS, you've got to have some ability to work with wireframes, to just say, I write words and that's what I do. Go and work in another space, not for you. If you want to work in SaaS copywriting, you need to have a, I can't write a line of code, but I build websites, you know, just using, say, Elementor, WordPress. So the, the important things are typography, how typography affect the copy and vice versa. Um, but also something I pride myself on is being able to write very specific word counts. So when I'm writing in, um, when I'm writing headers, I like to be able to say each of these is six words, or maybe five long words. And if you give me a header and say that head is slightly too long, I take pride in my ability to chop it down and do more with less. You know, I like to, it's different, difficult because you've got different resolutions and screen sizes, but I like to see everything uniform. To me, um, I look at the copy, not just in terms of the message, but also the aesthetics. So the aesthetics are a combination of typography, but also the words you use as well. How pretty does that look? How elegant does it look as well? or how exciting does it look? Um, so be able to work with wireframes and understand that it worked, it looked fine in Google Docs, but now you've got it in with that font and that size, that head is too long. You've got to be receptive to that and work with it. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult because again, like coming from a, from a business perspective, it's the dream to have the whole team available all times throughout the whole project. Uh, but you can and I have to have you don't have to have but nine times out of ten um you kind of have these cutoff points you're kind of given a, a phase in the project and then you're not yep. not there anymore and you do it is all well and good having stuff in a word document but it's not until you actually see it on the page where you can really look at it and now i need to kind of tweak it again so it's interesting um making sure that they're kind of maybe not involved kind of in the middle part but certainly towards the end um to see their work within the context and and, and critique their work yeah and that's why a copywriter has to have a good understanding of the um 
the process. I'm a big fan of the, the, the T model. I think it's called the T model. Um, so should I be a subject specialist or an all-rounder? Well, the T model suggests a you're a specialist at one thing, you're 90% of that. But having a baseline level of skills surrounding that. So if you're a good copywriter, you should have a working knowledge of graphic design, UI, UX, and website design, because being at 20 or 30% on those adds a ton more value. So I understand the process they're using. So I'll be involved early on um, critiquing the structure of the website itself, the pages that are involved. But I hand over a skeleton often showing, well, this is each of the main pages. This is, these are the goals for each of the pages. Do you agree? Okay, cool. Then I go away and write them and hand it over. And then often what happens is they go away and work at the design, sometimes for weeks, sometimes they're pretty much ready to go and it's, it's quicker. And then once it's all in place, I'll go back afterwards and say, okay, now it's all in place. Here's a few tweaks. You know, here are a few things that make it look a bit smoother, a bit more rounded. Um, so yeah, there's a main stage in the middle for content creation, but there's a bit beforehand with the goal, the objective goals, and a bit afterwards where I make a few amendments once it's all up on the website too. How does SEO fit into all this from, you know, from the research perspective through to implementation through to the refinement that kind of happens later down the line? That's, that's a good question. Um, so I'm a conversion copywriter. Um, the, the expression SEO copywriter, I find slightly problematic because I think any cop, any writer for a company should be working to achieve a goal. SEO isn't really a goal as such. Um, I think the idea is SEO copywriters do top of funnel content like blog content. Um, conversion copywriters tend to do lower funnel stuff but for me SEO is just a set of considerations and um, practically speaking they are on-page SEO so SEO can be broken up into two or three categories some people say on-page or off-page some people break it up into technical SEO as well but the point is as a copywriter it's on-page the most important thing to understand is headers you know you've got one h1 and one title tag and then the H2s and the H3s have to be used in a logical hierarchy. That's like the single most important thing for a copywriter to understand. You've got to know that. You know, you, your H2s, your subsections, H3s, the subclauses of those. You can look this stuff up online. In terms of use of keywords, that is really interesting because <clears throat> it used to be you could stuff keywords now with the rank brain algorithm, they're looking at natural semantic use, natural use of semantically related words. So for me, I um, sometimes I'm given a list of keywords or I refer a client to a SEO, um, to an SEO consultant who can produce a list of keywords. And I essentially just look at and immerse myself in those words and use them naturally throughout a copy. The whole thing of SEO is it's like chasing the hockey puck. If your goal of SEO is to chase after the rules and try and write content that ticks those boxes, you'll suck. And even if you don't think you suck right now, you'll suck later once Google catches up. And it goes back to this idea of there are some people who go into marketing because they actually care and want to help good companies do good things. And there are some people who go into marketing to make a buck. The irony is people who go into marketing to make a buck, don't make a buck. Um, and they shouldn't do it, they deserve to. So if you write copy that respects your readers and tries to offer them genuine value and solve their problems, and yeah, ticks a couple of boxes along the side for structure and tries to blend in a few keywords strategically, you'll do good. If you go into copywriting with a perspective that you want to trick search engines and make money, you won't do either of those things. And even if you do, it'll be short-lived. So yeah, the key things are using keywords strategically, but tastefully in a natural way. And yeah, using, using headers correctly. Um, that's, that, those are the two main things I'd say as far as SEO goes. But the, the direction of travel is clearly Google becoming better and better at recognizing and rewarding good nice content written by people who care and not stuff made by marketers i mean 
It's, a, it's funny because SEO, and this is not an SEO discussion by any stretch of the imagination, but it's important to, I think, distinguish and identify that Google is trying to be a human. It's trying to understand a web page. It's trying to, you know, it works well when um, it recognizes that a human, unsighted or sighted, can read and understand and use a website. And at the same time, some of those, some of those, uh, in pursuit of that goal, sometimes things fall through the net. You know, copywriters start looking at keywords, and keyword stuffing uh, comes into play, which, which you know was a problem a while ago, and they they fixed that. But it's it's important to recognise that to pull yourself back and think about how a human would want to read and, and enjoy the website because that's in turn what google is trying to do i guess marketers are trying to trick it and trying to learn the algorithm and uh and and try and find flaws in the logic in order to trick the the bot i think a lot of it's like dating you know if somebody says how do i date oh why like the amount of rules and procedures and processes if that was your way of thinking but you say well hang on you respect yourself you like yourself and you respect and you like other people and you uh, just just like be a decent person just treat somebody else with respect and care and and be fun to be around you know and they'll enjoy being around you or if it doesn't work out that's fine you know you wouldn't say to somebody well what you have to do is go on this many dates and buy them roses on the third date and use these words that's not how any of it works you know you have to You've got to have empathy to date and you have to have empathy to build a successful business. Anything else is just just way too much hard work. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it, it, it's a game that people are trying to play, but there's not, it's not really a game that needs to be played. Yeah, like reading 30 books about dating, is, that's, not, that's not smart. That's not going to be helpful. Just go out there and you know, be yourself and fail and then eventually succeed. I'd be interested to know your thoughts are as well on um, how websites, uh, particularly B2B, how websites have changed throughout the years. Because, I mean, just to underpin it with my perception and what I what I think, and you can let me know whether you think that's right or what, um, we've gone from these five-page websites, you know, your classic home, about, contact, uh, where it was just a shop window and you would describe it as a kind of shop window. And I would say certainly within the last five years, it's now feeling like that a website is, I mean, we all, unless you're living under a walk, um, a website is not just a shop window anymore. It's actually something that needs to work for the business um, as a machine. But every single website is moving into this space and i feel like and it's interesting because you're b2b it's it's kind of come from a b2b um i feel like b2b and b2c are kind of doing this dance at the moment where they're kind of feeding off each other and it feels like b2c was a kind of different animal but they're all bouncing off each other and all learning and they're all turning into this this thing where each page of a website is a landing page where it's trying to achieve its own thing I mean, first of all, do you agree with that? Um, and then maybe shed some light on whether you've seen that progression or that change and, and whether you've needed to change and adapt. Yeah, totally. And I think that so much of marketing makes sense when you go back to the core of respect your customer. And so what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, I respect that my customer doesn't have much time. And therefore, I have a duty to grab their attention, demonstrate value as quickly as possible. Uh, bad copywriting personally offends me. It upsets me. When someone writes in a way where they, you cannot make immediate sense of what they think or what they're trying to say and you have to dig into the copy to get out more, I find that offensive. I think it's insulting. I think as a copywriter, you have to respect, hey, a bunch of people are trying to talk to you right now. Here's what I can do for you. And then when you come into that page, the page delivers on that promise and gives them what you told them it could do. And you, you, you can, you know, we could talk about things like bounce rates, for example, like if you load a website up and it doesn't serve on its promise, you'll leave quickly. It will get a bad bounce rate. and You'll be penalized. But again, you don't even need to know that if you just respect your customer doesn't have much time 
and you respect, and this is what I think one of the big changes is, your customer has access to a lot of high quality information. So for B2C, my mum, wonderful, highly intelligent woman, not amazing with technology, and she'd be happy for me to say that. And so we were saying yesterday, um, previously she'd go to a particular department store called John Lewis in the UK, which has got a great reputation and trust that they'd recommend the best TV or the best kettle. She now knows she can go on Amazon and check all the user reviews. If you're in B2B, you've got all sorts of places where Captera G2, places where you can get reviews. A lot of business owners just jump on their Facebook group and say, hey, I'm looking to buy a CRM system. What do you recommend? So that combined with the understanding and the respect that people use the internet to get things done quickly and they skim through, help us to understand that when you're designing any website, you have to make your value proposition as crystal clear as quickly as possible. And then after that, anything that you've hinted towards or suggested must be backed up with data and statistics. You cannot say we're the best. You cannot say we're number one and fail to back that up with data. So I think that's the shift in the market is is people using people are using the internet more and more but at the same time because they're doing more and more online they've got less time for each individual website so if you look at the way that we have landing pages you look at the way that pages are designed and websites are designed your meta description your page title even from the search engine straight away from the search engine you have to grab their attention respect them show them why it's worth clicking that hyperlink to your website as soon as they load the website your title and your explainer have to give them a reason to scroll down. And as they scroll down, they have to be provided with um, reassurance or evidence that it's worth reading a body copy. So that's one really important point for copywriting. Um, you have headers and you have the body or paragraph copy. You should be able to remove all of a body and paragraph copy from a page. The page still makes sense because nobody ever reads your website page, no one. They skim through and if any of the headers grab their attention, they then say, okay, I'll give that two minutes to read it. You, you must be able to skim through any website page or landing page, make total sense of it from the headers alone because only then will people read the paragraph and body mm. copy. Yeah, that actually makes perfect sense. And I suppose that's, that's a real nugget of information there that a lot of people will miss. And it's, it's an easy thing to do. You know, you have a plugin on Chrome that just helps you isolate all the headers that will just show you all the headers. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, from a tech point of view, it's called the document outline. And it's what's created when uh, it's like a table of contents of what's created when a developer uses headings. You know, from a, from a from a dev point of view, you want to make sure you've got a H1 followed by H2 followed by H3, and that all the numbers kind of match up because otherwise you'll have missing headers and you'll see it and you'll go in and need to fix that. So yeah, there's a plugin that allows you to do it, and the document outline is is what it is. So, and if I can sit back and look at the headers and it all makes sense, then I mean, hopefully the customer then will understand what you do just from the headers alone when it's actually applied to the page it's an easy win we have it's funny because that's a um like a scientific take on what i do what a few other copywriters do which is the squint test so we just do a squint or blur test so you you know you go like that your eyes so you can't see very well um and uh or just take off your glasses i don't know if you're short long-sighted either way make it harder to read the website page and you should be able to still get a really clear overview. And that is because the, the headers and titles have been written well. Not just, well, A, they are relevant to and reflective of the body copy, but B, also the titles have been written using simple, punchy language. As a copywriter, if I can take a complex B2B product and make a homepage that a five-year-old can read, I've done my job really damn well. It's the same thing as writing for tabloids. It's well known in journalism. Um, people make snobbish sideways remarks about the kind of people who read tabloids, whatever. It's a hell of a lot harder to write copy for the star and the sun than it is to write copy for Daily Telegraph. All of those journalists are intelligent, all of them. Um, the Telegraph journalist just writes naturally. 
the son of a star journalist who, let's be clear about this, I'm from a journalism industry. Anyone who works for Sun and the star could work for a telegraph like that. Someone who works for Telegraph can't necessarily work at the son of a star because it's harder to take somebody with an above average IQ and education and take their language and make it simple and punchy and easy to understand. It's the same thing for tabloids as well. Sorry, for, for um, B2B copywriting. It's a, it's a lot harder to communicate an idea using simple language, but it's more effective. Yeah. There's a uh, there's a quote and uh, I don't know what it is. I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's on the lines of, uh, "Sorry, I wrote this long email. I didn't have time to write a short one or something like that." Exactly, exactly. That that's why um, the dumbest idea in copywriting is selling per word. No one should ever, ever, ever sell copy per word. As far as I'm concerned, like that, nobody should do that. That's a very bottom end. When you're building up your confidence, I used to do hourly or day rates, and then you get higher up when you know what you're worth and you charge project rates. Um, but if you look at a landing page I've done, a landing page might have 800 words. The irony of good copywriting is when it's done really well, it looks easy. So you look at a finished 800 word landing page and you think, why does it cost thousands of dollars? If you looked about halfway through, you would see a terrifying building site of thousands and thousands of words. It's like all of these horrible building materials, chunks and chunks of copy, and I have to condense it down and condense it down and make it more and more easy to read using shorter and shorter words. Yeah, I think uh, that, I mean, I don't know whether you think the same thing, but that could be one of those things that people are trying to read and understand the Google machine because they think it cares about word count. So now we need to write more words. And that's how that's kind of fallen into play. But Google's getting smarter now and it's about engaging copy uh, and easy to understand copy. So again, you can have a page of 500 words and be ranking number one in Google over a page with a thousand words because I think they they recommend, you know, at least a thousand words or 1,500 words for a blog post. And maybe that's evidence of people just trying to cheat the kind of system. I think the thing is... Um... I mean, what's interesting is most of the top copywriters that I know are value data, but also are nuanced about how they use that data. So you can identify a correlation. That doesn't mean that it's a good idea to ape the conclusion of that correlation. So I understand, I'm no expert, I understand that there is a correlation between longer word counts and higher ranking in Google. However, the most important thing is always engagement. So if you have a 500 word article that really nails a topic and really um, explores it and does a great job exploring it and giving you some useful conclusions, job done, going and writing more copy and taking it up to 1500 words will only dilute that. It'll make it less, more, more likely people leave early and, 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 and escape. So if the right length of copy is 500 words and it's 500 words even if the average is you know 1500 words the engagement is always more important if people hang around on my page for longer or share it with their friends versus just leaving and diluting your copy of excess words is a great way to make sure people just leave a page and don't come back mm. yeah sure i think um maybe we're giving google a bit of a hard time uh that was probably their first stab at assuming that people like long content because of the word count. But actually, you know, it's, it's engagement. And, and they'll update their spider to to uh, understand engagement. And maybe they've already done that. I'm not too sure. But we're talking about engagement and their first stab at it wasn't, wasn't great. Yeah, correlation doesn't equal causation. I think if there is a correlation between longer word count and high ranking, but it's just for that doesn't mean you should do longer word count for sake of longer word count. It might be in your particular instance, it's a simple topic. It doesn't need it, even if there is that correlation overall. Yeah. With the uh, going back to the whole landing page theory thing that I had, I feel like that that came from B2C, uh, a B2C approach to things. Um, I mean, let's put people into buckets right now b2b are a lot more patient maybe than b2c customers you know you're talking about someone who just wants to buy a pair of shoes versus someone who's 
going to spend tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of pounds on a on a piece of software. So they're going to invest more time in in their purchasing decision. And now that's you know that's a very broad kind of description there. But I don't know. Is that something? Do you do you think that's necessarily true? And that it has been bought from a B two C type of angle, or am I just completely making stuff up? That specific question, I'm actually not sure. I mean, I don't know if I've been writing copy long enough to say for sure. I certainly think the lines between B two B and B two C have been blurred, and I think that um, I think I mentioned earlier on a big mistake people make with B two B copywriting is to forget that they're talking to human beings and that those humans have their own complex emotions and needs. The key difference of B2B and B2C, B2B you're writing for multiple people, B2C you're writing for one person. That's the biggest difference. And so when you've got a group of people, um, they are more likely to discuss ideas amongst themselves and therefore reach rational conclusions and be less susceptible to an emotional cell. Nonetheless, um, if you haven't, you know, if you've got to get on board in a B2B cell, the end user, they might, they're going to care about how nice a product is to use, how it can save them time. The accountant uh, is going to care about the ability to split the cost over time. The business owner will care about how it helps them achieve strategic long-term goals. Now I can write this stuff out, but what that doesn't encapsulate is the feelings involved. So how does it feel for an end user when they have a product that's an absolute pig to use? They get frustrated. It's, te- you know, it's tedious doing data entry. It's annoying to have to do the same task again and again. How does an accountant feel about having a product that the costing doesn't work well for? They feel worried about the fact that they might get in trouble spending too much on it. Um, how does the CEO feel about the product achieving its strategic goals? Well, he feels a sense of relief, but it'll help him get to those strategic goals. Uh, happiness and joy that he can spend more time with his family because it means that he has to spend less time looking over reports. We can sit down and pencil out these dry, objective business needs that each of these people have. But if that's where you stop, then you're not a very good B2B sales copywriter. What you need to do is then think about what's the emotional implication of all of these things. That's what B2B copywriting is all about. What I love about it is mapping out a dry academic framework of people's needs, but then having to empathize and think about the emotional impact of all of those things. You have to do both. It's a bit like we were talking about earlier with guitar work. If you just learn theories and chords, then you'll play the right notes, but you'll be soulless and boring. If you just try and be creative, maybe there's some feeling in there, but you're going to play the wrong damn notes and it will sound rubbish. You have to learn the theory, then you have to be creative afterwards. So B2B, you have to have the underlying framework of the, uh, the, the business, the goals you're trying to achieve, the uh, wave of a website can achieve those goals and a strategy for doing that on a macro level, on a micro level for conversion strategy for each page. And then you have a framework and you have a skeleton. That thing is dead until you put flesh on it. Flesh is the emotions, the feelings involved, the empathy. Only when you have a skeleton and a flesh do you have something that lives and does its job. Mm. That's um that's a beautiful segue because I'm I'm mindful of time, but my my final question I guess was really going to be about how do you take that skeleton and like I was going to ask about your style, your personal style, and the company, your business's branding, and does that have a place in all this? And how do you balance those? Like brand is a huge thing, and you need to be able to reflect that brand. But there's a lot of distilling going on, you know looking at data, looking at customers, and then adding brand to that. How does that all fit into that, your workflow? I'll be really honest. I, I, I think I spend less time thinking about voice of brand than most copywriters. That's not to say I, I shouldn't be more. Um, I, I believe there are lots of things that people do. They, what do they describe? The different stages of learning. You know, you're unconsciously incompetent, then you're consciously incompetent then you're unconsciously, uh, consciously incompetent, consciously competent, and then finally you're unconsciously competent. 
I think a lot of the time people use technical terminology to describe things that after a while you do naturally. So I don't spend much time looking at companies voice of brand. And I, I give those things a passing glance. I look at their customers. That's all I really care about is the customers. And I think if you're ever lost as a copywriter or a marketer, you always go back to your customers, their testimonials and their pain points. I look at the language that they use. So the company I just worked with now, real estate brand, gave me hundreds of quotes from customers. I read all of them and I pull out words that appear again and again and again. And when they start using the same kind of emotional language to describe how their product makes them feel, or the same kind of emotional language to describe the frustration and pain points I felt, I just absorb those naturally. And they talk about the problems that are solved. I guess I just let that guide my 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 voice, so to speak. I, I don't think B2B has probably as much range anyway as B2C. I'm British, so I'm quite dry. Uh, some B2B2C copy can be quite wacky. And I don't I don't do wacky copy. I don't like wacky copy. For me, I don't really I just think about almost meditating on and absorbing the customer for as long as possible, their needs, their wants. And then just trying to speak to them in a cool, respectful, efficient way. That's really all I do, to be honest. I don't make it any more complicated than that. Understanding what they need, what they care about, and trying to give it to them as quickly and respectfully as I can. That's that's really what I say, I'd say I do. Yeah, yeah. And I really respect and agree with that that ethos. Like I... I feel like brand is this pepper that sits on th- on top of things and sort of nudges it in the sort of direction or whatever. It acts as a foundation to probably foundation, like you say, like a lot of things. Um, certainly with copy, that's maybe my sense that, you know, that I like that idea of foundational succinct. The sales, the journey, the respect on time, and then the brand might come in and say, well, we just wouldn't say that word, you know. I think a lot of the time it's really... I'll be really blunt. Like I think a lot of the time this terminology is for someone else to understand marketing. I, I, I don't make it that complicated. A lot of the time it's like a somebody else, a marketing lecturer wants to create a theory for this stuff and make it out to be more complicated than it needs to be. And uh, you know, I, I used to do a lot of martial arts and it's like you, you, you study various moves and that sort of thing, but you don't think I'm going to perform a spinning back fist or like a left roundhouse you learn these moves and then you just do your thing. And a lot of the time, I think people that make marketing really complicated and use a lot of words and terminology aren't normally great marketers. I probably engaged that stuff more earlier on, but it just gets to this point where you just care about people and empathize with them and try and communicate with them in a really clear and direct way. I think that should always be the guiding light really that kind of empathy when you start relying on rules and systems too much i think you kind of lost your way yeah i think that underpins everything we've spoken about really um the empathy is so key yeah so key to seo to you know copywriting just everything really we we have we have a, a lot of sociopathic marketers i don't like sociopathic marketers um all of the guys i know in sas guys and girls i should say in sas are empathetic nice people and uh when i pop my head into other sectors like e-commerce sometimes there are some sociopaths there i want nothing to do with these people i I was kicked out of the biggest copywriter group on uh facebook specifically because i loudly voiced my objections to somebody selling a dodgy fake health supplement for somebody with cancer and i was like what the hell do you think you're doing you know who the hell are you to try and take advantage of somebody in that position I just really think that um, if you don't have a moral compass, if you don't have a clear sense of right sense of right and wrong, please don't go into marketing. Go and do something else. Sort yourself out. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. To be honest, you know, when you highlight that, you know, we have a social responsibility as you as marketers to know, and 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 we as website designers too. We need to be fully aware of the impact we're having. And we need to follow that, you know, trust our gut and trust our moral compass, like you say, 
exactly that apologies we have a couple of very wild dogs in the background um yeah that's exactly it. you've got a a dangerous set of tools as a marketer and i think you know it's a lot like i'm not into guns i should preface but um people who are into guns um you have to learn how to respect your firearm you know you have to learn to point it at the ground first and as a marketer to me um my equivalent of pointing my firearm at the ground and keeping my finger off a trigger is well is this product actually going to help people now if if you've got a product that can cure cancer that's amazing a lot of the time you can't do that but if you can just give somebody back five minutes of their life each day if your software can do a job more quickly and save a bit of money that's cool that's a really nice thing to give them that five minutes could be really valuable you don't have to change the world you can just give people back a bit more time each day but um if you're just trying to extract money from people i I don't want to know you go please please go and do something else in your life yeah yeah yeah. and that's interesting like five minutes be honest about that don't say that you're going to give your life back and and only give back five minutes you know that can be really important that can be really valuable i mean that was the company i just worked with a real estate brand that was what i loved most reading their software uh feedback from customers yes there was lots of we we save time we do things more quickly but a guy saying, you know what, I used to leave work late on a Friday and check my laptop all weekend. Now I can leave work early on a Friday, spend more time with my family. And I just check my phone for the app that you guys have given me once or twice of a weekend. And my family is happier. Like, that's amazing. That's awesome. To be able to take that message and give that to people. I sleep really well at night charging money to do that job. I'm, I'm not just selling a piece of software. I'm helping promote a message to a business audience. That, hey, you could spend more time with your family if you shift to this platform. Yeah, that's incredible. Listen, we've been on this call for a while now and you've probably got more important things to do. So I'll, I'll wrap it up there if that's all right. No worries. Is there anything you wanted to say or you know leave us with? Nope, uh, none at all. Other than if you are interested in helping your uh SaaS brand to express wonderful things you can give to business owners and to their employees slightly more succinctly and clearly feel free to reach out to me at gorillaflow.com excellent brilliant well thank you so much for your time that was uh, incredible uh, incredible conversation uh, i hope we can do it again because i have much more to say and maybe we can talk about guitars more <laughs> yeah no we had a, we had a really good warm-up call beforehand that was fun too so yeah that was really enjoyable Thanks, Samuel. Thank you. Nice one. We'll be in touch and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks again. Cheers. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.